You are listening to the Quarter Transmissions Episode 25. And now, here are Craig and Jeff. Welcome back to another installment of the Tricorder Transmissions, and here we are again, your host, Jeff Hewlett. And Craig Cohen. Good to be back with you, Craig, for our 25th episode. It's pretty cool, huh? It's pretty much a landmark. Yeah, you know, it's awesome, and I remember when on my other podcast, the uh, Camel Clutch Cinema with Guy Hutchinson, when we hit our 25th episode we talked about the fact that now we can sit down or people can sit down and they can pretty much listen to us for an entire day. Wow, that's actually a good point. I would not have thought of that. You you're, you got a good point there. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty wild and it, it's very cool. And, it, and it's been awesome getting to these 25 episodes with you and I look forward to uh, the next 25 and the 25 after that. Yep, and we'll have plenty more coming down your way. So... This episode is significant uh, in a couple of ways. One is that we're kind of changing up our format here uh, for this episode. Usually, uh, you know, we have our intro and we go into the into the episode. And we don't necessarily talk uh, about the episode itself in the introduction, but because this episode uh, has some interesting social commentary in it, and there was stuff that we wanted to talk about that we didn't have time to talk about during our commentary, we actually recorded the commentary first, and now we're going back and we're recording uh, an ex- a little bit of an extended introduction, uh, In we're going to talk about a couple of interviews with uh, Shatner and Nimoy, where they talk a little bit about the episode and some of the things that went on during the, uh, the actual uh, taping of this episode. So before we get to that, though, as as great a high point as this is for us as a, as a 25th episode, I do unfortunately have some sad news to share. It appears that uh, Hal Sutherland, the director of the first uh, season of the animated series and co-founder of Filmation Studios, has passed away. Oh, yeah, goodness! I, I, did that? Did that just happen? Yeah, just announced today. Uh, they didn't give a date when he passed away, but they acknowledged today that he did pass away. Oh, that's, so that's, that's kind of sad. Yeah, that is sad. He uh, Filmation, they did a lot of, of great work, and the animated series is, is something that I enjoy immensely. So, uh, yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I'll, I'll probably watch an episode of the animated uh, series this, this weekend to uh, sort of uh, pay my respects. Yeah, yeah, me too. He, I, when I was a little kid, I, I really loved the uh, He-Man cartoon series that was yeah. done by Filmation. That was a big one for me. And also Fat Albert. Yeah. I loved Fat Albert, too. So I didn't realize I had looked this up uh, just before we started talking, and he actually started working as a Disney animator in 1954, working on Sleeping Beauty. Oh, wow. That's cool. So, yeah, I have a, a good friend of mine who's a huge, huge fan of Sleeping Beauty. She collects everything Aurora-related. So uh, sad, sad day that's learn that Hal Sutherland has passed away. We have a couple of interview clips that we're going to be sharing. We're going to be playing them here 
in during the intro and then talking about them. And I'm going to launch right into this with an interview uh, with William Shatner that was broadcast a few years ago on the Sci-Fi Channel when the remastered episodes were airing. And this is Shatner talking about uh, the overall plot and the underlying uh, social commentary of this episode. So uh, give a listen to this, and then we'll be back to talk about it in a minute. The Devil in the Dark, written by Gene Kuhn, is a true classic. This episode is an examination of bigotry, intolerance, and ignorance. When faced with the unknown, mankind's initial stance has always been to regard it as the enemy and to obliterate it. But sometimes an enemy is not what it appears to be. In an early episode, The Man Trap, Kirk's first response was to destroy that story's villain, Salt Vampire. Here, in The Devil in the Dark, it becomes very important to Kirk to establish communication with the Horta. Even Kirk has his consciousness raised during his travels through space. All right, we're back. So, Craig, what did you think about this? You know, you, we've watched this episode. I know I've seen this episode quite a few times uh, in, in the past. And, uh, you know, this, this episode is very big on, uh, you know, social commentaries. A lot of themes in this episode about bigotry and hatred. Did, did, do you get that from watching this episode? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, even more so after our discussion and, and hearing what William Shatner had to say at the beginning of, of, uh, of his clip. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good message. And it's surprising that, you know, 40 plus years later, we really haven't learned that lesson. <laughs> I know. It's kind of sad that I can, I can draw a lot of parallels to things that are still going on in, in our modern day here in 2014. And you know, I see it a lot in my everyday life, and you know, general, normal everyday people that make judgment calls about people and classes of people, and it's a shame that we haven't evolved much, especially considering Star Trek itself, the series, kind of had uh, its early days in our own time period here, so we're actually starting to get to where, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching where Star Trek is in its beginnings, you know, so yeah, that, that prediction, unfortunately, hasn't come true yet. So, um... One thing that Shatner mentions in this interview clip that I found really interesting and something that I think I've mentioned on the show a couple times is how Kirk's character grows, especially about the uh, the man trap and his reaction to the salt vampire and how it was, you know, kill it, kill it, kill it. When it comes to the Horda, he seems to react quite differently. Yeah, I thought that was neat and that wasn't a connection I had made uh, and it shows the growth of that character within even the first season, which is, which is very neat because, you know, the, the casual Star Trek fan might not, might not really think that Kirk had any kind of arc over the three seasons, you know, that the original series aired. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I am so endeared to this series in the first place is that, you know, for a, for a science fiction show, you can watch it on so many different levels. And the more you get involved with the show and learning about the characters, the more depth they, they, they get. And I loved seeing how the characters changed over the course of time and through the movies later on. So this was one of the big growing moments, I think, for Kirk. And it kind of feeds into the whole prime directive thing that they're growing into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The funniest thing about this whole thing is uh, I don't remember Spock's attitude completely from uh the man trap but uh it doesn't seem like spock was as uh 
as anxious to save the salt monster. Yeah, no, well, he he did express some remorse and and, and some concern about the salt monster, but uh, and this episode's a little bit different too. We'll get to that when uh, when we talk about the commentary itself. So, uh, any more comments about this interview clip? No, no, but I I really enjoy enjoy those segments, and I've I've sort of searched and you know tried to find as as many of those as I can to uh, to listen. Uh, I don't really remember watching these episodes when they were on sci-fi and they were doing these sort of inserts but uh it seems like a really cool way to watch the show yeah definitely i i did catch a few of them during the run but i i I didn't watch all of them so a lot of these are new to me as well so we're going to move on to another interview clip with shatner from the same sci-fi airing of the devil in the dark Uh, this one is uh, a little more detail about the uh, behind the scenes things that were going on during the filming of this episode. So uh, here, give a listen, and we'll be right back. For more than 30 years, I've been asked, uh, what's your favorite episode? And my answer is The Devil in the Dark. Although the story is incredibly exciting and exemplifies the best characteristics that Star Trek had to offer, those are not the reasons why it's my favorite. On the second day of shooting uh, uh, this episode, I received a phone call that my father had died. So we were going to shut down production at that point. But as my flight to Miami wasn't leaving until the evening, I suggested we continue to shoot our scenes. I wanted to be surrounded by my other family, the Star Trek cast and crew. They were indeed my support system during a very difficult time. All right, so pretty telling, huh? So Shatner's favorite episode is the devil in the dark yeah that that was very cool to hear and it's makes me feel even more surprised that this isn't an episode that i really had too much of a memory of you know i know on the episode we talk about how i i i this might be one of the episodes that i'd only seen once and uh considering how important it is to william shatner you know it, it kind of surprised me that it, it wasn't on my radar a little bit uh a little bit earlier it's funny because this is one of my favorites and you know and it's the reasons why it's it's a favorite for Shatner is different than why it would be a favorite for me so it's kind of an unexpected uh, reason that uh, you know it's more of a personal deeply personal reason for him that uh, he he you know went through that you know family tragedy during the taping of this this episode but I think it was really interesting that he elected to uh, stick around that day uh, because his flight wasn't leaving till later, he he chose to continue working. I mean, that that's a, a lot of dedication to a yeah. role. Yeah, and I think you know, like he he said, you know, he was able to spend time with his other family, and I guess the prospect of of working through personal tragedy, um, there's some benefit there. Yeah, definitely, and I think another really cool thing that I took out of out of that was that. If you read a lot about Star Trek and you watch movies uh, like Galaxy Quest, you know, the prevailing opinion was that Shatner, you know, was a jerk and everybody hated him. But it's I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, from from moments like this and we'll hear something in this Nimoy interview clip coming up. I don't I don't think it was that bad. I mean, I know he wasn't the easiest person to work with, but I think the uh, the stories may be a little bit overblown. Sure. And, you know, everybody brings with them sort of their personal baggage 
in terms of how they perceived things. And, you know, it, it was probably hard for somebody like, let's say, James Doohan, who had a different role on Star Trek than William Shatner did. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, and to a lesser degree, DeForest Kelly, they were sort of tasked with carrying the series. If, if one of those elements was removed, the series was going to suffer. Whereas some of the lesser cast members, that wouldn't have been felt as much, not to take anything away from what those people brought to the series. But I could see how that could sort of work its way onto the set. Sure. And, you know, make things more challenging or more demanding, depending on who you were. So I can't imagine it was easy for anybody. But I think the fact that Nimoy and Shatner have remained lifelong friends really speaks to the volume of, of sort of both men's character. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, they've, they've appeared together and done conventions together. And uh, I think it's great that uh, they've both grown into their ongoing roles in the Star Trek universe. And it was very well documented that early on after this, you know, the, the, the series was canceled and conventions started that the, the cast were kind of like, what the heck is all this stuff? And, Nimoy writing the I'm not Spock book and and then writing I am, am Spock. Spock right and then and you know and Shatner kind of with that famous you know the, the get a life the get a life comment yeah mm-hmm. so it's pretty interesting to watch them evolve and how they've stayed friends that entire time so that's pretty yeah and it seems it seems genuine too I mean yeah. not to say that you know I mean they're they're both actors so you never know right. but the moments that I've seen uh, with the two of them they definitely seem like they they have a genuine sort of affection for each other yeah i definitely can feel that so moving on we have one more interview clip that we're going to play and this one is leonard nimoy talking about the devil in the dark so let's have a listen to that and we'll be back in a second devil in the dark an, an excellent episode it was about something important for me it was about the way we tend to demonize the things that we don't know or understand or the people that we don't know or understand it was complicated because Bill Shatner's father died during the making of that episode. And he had to go off to Florida to deal with uh, the funeral and what have you. While he was gone, I was doing this contact with the Horda, doing this mind meld where I'm getting in touch with what it's experiencing. And we have shot it and it's in pain. And I'm, with, I'm experiencing that pain with it and I'm I don't remember exactly how I did it, but something like pain, pain, something like that. Maybe bigger than that. And Bill was not there. Pain! Now he came back two or three days later, and now it's time to put the camera on him. There was one shot where they shot across a double's shoulder. So you thought that Bill was in the scene while I'm doing that, but it was not Bill, it was a double. But now the camera has to turn around, we have to see Bill reacting to this. So he comes back, and we turn the camera around on him. And he said, well, can Leonard show me what he did? I said, sure, I'll show you. So I walk over to the position, and I, I, do, I said, it was something like this, Bill was, pain, pain. And he said, uh, is that exactly the way you did it? I said, no, not exactly. Well, show me exactly what you did. Pain, pain. No, he said, let me, let me see what you really did. So, pain, pain. And Bill is devilish, with a gleam in his eye, turns to the crew and says, would somebody give this guy an aspirin? He just sucked me right into it, you know, <laughs> having a good time with me. I want to kill him. <laughs> well, uh, Bill had that kind of a 
warped sense of humor. All right. That was pretty interesting, huh? Oh, yeah. So, again, we hear a little bit more about the uh, social commentary aspect and talking about how people demonize, you know, what we don't understand or what we don't know. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about it before that it's still valid to this day, but I thought the inter- really interesting part of this interview was the joke that Shatner played. Yeah, somebody uh, get him an aspirin. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you think about it, and, you know, Shatner's just coming back from uh, his father's funeral, which must be a really emotional time, and, 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 you know, stuff like that is very draining on a family. I know from my personal experience, you know, deaths in the family have been really tough you know, for me and, and, you know, being back a, a few to work a few days later, it's not the easiest thing to do. No. You know, especially, you know, bringing his sense of humor back and, and goofing on uh, Nimoy right away. It's pretty interesting. You know, yes. Kind of sheds a little more light on, on some of the, the, the friendships that went on behind the scenes. And I think it kind of helps to chisel away a little bit at the, you know, the prevailing opinions. Yes, what they definitely. Were like. uh, anything else uh, you want to? mention about this one no it's just uh an episode that i'm glad we do this podcast because i get introduced to episodes that i might have overlooked or might not have considered watching uh when i went to go watch an episode of star trek and it's cool to sort of have this episode now in in uh you know, in the front of my mind as as a special episode for a lot of different reasons. So uh, one of the many benefits of doing this podcast, in my opinion. Yeah, it, I've had a lot of fun with this, too, in the last 25 episodes. And uh, this episode in particular was a lot of fun because this is a, an episode that I've always been very fond of ever since I was a young child. It's one of the ones that's always stuck out in my mind. And uh, being able to sit down and talk about it and do a little of this behind-the-scenes discussion with these interviews to add some more value is is really great so you want to get into the commentary please yeah yeah, let's let's do it all right so the air date for the devil in the dark was march 9th of 1967 and the remastered version aired on september 23rd of 2006. cool and i have a really quick synopsis here the enterprise arrives at janus 6 where an unknown monster is destroying machinery and killing the miners threatening the entire mining operation. Very cool. So, we are going to get started with our scene-specific commentary in 3, 2, 1. All right. And here we are approaching Janus 6. Yeah, and I got to say, we've talked a lot about the remastered effects, Mm -hmm. but this has to be, in my opinion, the best use of the remastering technology, if you will. And... Uh, a good example of tasteful use. I mean, you, you see, uh, not only did they replace the map painting, but you had two guys actually walking around in the scene, making it look even more realistic. Yeah, but yeah, like you said, they stayed true to the the production design. They didn't incorporate their own ideas. You know, there might be some subtle stuff there. I mean, I never really paused it and looked at it and compared it, but um, it adds so much, you know, uh, reality to that to that sequence it definitely does and it, it's a it's very good that it happens in a very historic stinger mm. do you know oh, okay. why this is a historic stinger um somebody dies no okay this is the only stinger in the entire original oh. series that does not have any enterprise crew members in it i was gonna guess that as you were saying it but yep. yeah you know what i didn't make that connection watching the episode it is the only one 
So, uh, yeah, it's the only one in the entire series. So pretty cool. Wow. That, uh, that's no, a and, historic and that, episode. Yeah. I guess yeah. that includes the one. What was the time travel one we watched where they went uh, started with the Air Force? Oh, uh, uh, tomorrow's yesterday. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a pretty long opening, though. And, and the Enterprise is in it. Yeah, it is. And yeah. oh, this this episode is also has a, a historical significance. It is the only TOS episode with no female speaking parts. Wow. Okay. Not one single female speaking part, and uh, part of that is because uh, Uhura is not in this episode. Oh right, yeah, they're not on the Enterprise. I mean, no. the Enterprise are they're barely on it. Yeah, and no Sulu, of course. Yeah. So uh, again, yeah, the Enterprise is only seen. Uh, the bridge of the Enterprise is the only part of the ship that's seen in this episode, and it's seen two times. Up, oh, and we just felt, got a, a little bit of a taste of what's to come here. I felt really bad for that guy because it was like they left him there, and it, even though they were giving him reassurances, it was almost like everybody knew that he was he was toast. Yeah, they did, and you know it was sad because he had such hope because he asked if the Enterprise was coming, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah they're on their way." You'll be okay. They're coming. So the poor guy, he just kind of got ditched there. Oof. And I kind of like how they, they referenced that he was burned to a crisp, but they didn't show it. And I'm sure that was a limitation of, um, you know, the series at the time from a, a production standpoint and then also from probably a censorship standpoint. But uh, it makes it incredibly um, effective. Yeah, I think it actually adds – quite a bit to the power of the the stinger i think this is one of one of my favorite stingers uh, of all the episodes because it it has such a great cliffhanger at the end you, mm -hmm. you don't know what the monster looks like yeah all you know is that it kills people instantly and you know you don't ever even hear it coming really yeah so and this cool. is uh, from the same director and writing team as a taste of armageddon yep. joseph pevney and uh, gene l coon on, on A Taste of Armageddon, Gene L. Coon had help with a story from Robert Hamner, but uh, but here it is the same director and writer, which I which I think is kind of neat. You know, it's uh, you got two episodes from the from the same creative team, if you will. Yeah, that's it's definitely cool, and I think this episode you know profits from that. So it, it's the, just about everything in this episode is almost a perfect Star Trek episode, in my opinion. I think I've just tipped my hand a little bit too. Mm -hmm. uh, I. I guess it doesn't matter if i wait till the end to say this but th this is currently one of my very favorite if not my favorite star trek the original series episode now do you have like a um is there a history behind that um i, I have distinct memories of seeing this when i was a young kid uh, and i liked it a lot back then mm -hmm. and i think it's just really stuck with me over the years and it's one of the ones i continue to love to rewatch over and over again there's a lot of great moments in this episode uh, a monster that is non-humanoid, which is kind of rare in yeah. the original series. So a lot of great, a couple of good humorous moments, a lot of really great stuff in here. But then again, here I am tipping my hand again. Yeah. And, you know, but you know what? That That's funny because when I sat down to watch this for this recording um, or this episode, I realized that this is one of the episodes that I've, I've, you know, I've mentioned there's a handful of Star Trek episodes that I've only seen once. And I and it I couldn't remember watching this episode more than probably really early on when I first got into Star Trek. So it, it was almost like a lost episode for me. Oh wow, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty yeah. Cool. So back to what's going on here for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, we found out that uh, a distress call called the Enterprise in, and uh, they referred to Janus Six as a long 
established colony. We haven't, we didn't say how long. We'll find that out in a little while, but it's actually yeah. been there about 50 years. Yeah. So pretty interesting. And Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to the planet with no security detail whatsoever. Yeah, that that's a very interesting uh, observation. Yeah, isn't that strange? You think if it was a distress call, they they'd have some security guys there just in case. Yeah, and can you imagine what the enterprises uh, the enterprises missions would have been like had they not get kept getting these distress calls? Yeah, how how much further out could they have gotten <laughs> if they didn't have to keep deviating? But it you seems know, like they kept getting you know caught up in these distress calls. They had to go clean up other people's messes. Yeah. <laughs> This is a really great uh, bit of dialogue here. So, uh -huh. And we also learn about, what, Phaser 1 and Phaser 2 here. Yeah, in, in another minute. So I thought it was pretty interesting that this that they this guy says he got a shot off, and Spock immediately assumes that he meant, uh, you know, you took a shot at it but didn't actually hit it. Yeah. So uh, kind of funny little bit of dialogue there. It's Spock's kind of trying to poke a needle at the guy, but uh, didn't didn't wind up actually being correct. Yeah. And there was a little bit of disdain there from uh, from this guy about, uh, mm -hmm. you know, thinking that the, you know, the Enterprise crew uh, or Kirk and Spock are sort of acting like, uh, you know, these badass cowboys, you know, space cowboys, if you will. And he says, uh, you know, you're you're you can't get your ship down in these tunnels to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to use your uh, your high tech, uh, powerful uh, weapon. Yep. weaponry. Yeah. So and it's kind of interesting because you, you we as viewers know that Kirk and Spock have seen all kinds of stuff in their travels. And uh, that's why they're not, they don't even appear to be uh, scared at all. Yeah. Despite, you know, the, the, the fear running through the colonists that are, that have seen this thing, you know, murdering tons and tons of people. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think it's been stated yet, but there's a body count of, of close to 50. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, quite I know a they bit. do say 50, but I'm not sure if they're counting people that have yet spoiler uh, <laughs> yet to die. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see a couple more. Uh, you know, that little uh, silicone nodule that's sitting there on the desk, mm -hmm. which know, is said a couple different ways during the episode. Uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, Spock seems to say silic silicon. Yep. Silicon. Silicon. Yeah. McCoy says sort of says silicone. Yeah, it it is said a couple of different ways, but those are actually um, little toy bouncing balls that are painted. Oh, okay. To look that way. So when you see the big pile of them uh, later on, it's just a pile of big children's uh, <laughs> bouncing kickballs or whatnot painted to look like that. Oh, so, that's um, neat. And you know what, what? What really threw me for a loop a little bit though. Now that I was a little bit older and started to understand more about what was going on. I mean, these guys are miners mm -hmm. you know they're they're they, they see all manner of rocks all over the place wouldn't they think that finding a bunch of perfectly spherical rocks is a little bit odd you don't see perfectly spherical rocks in nature so it, it's strange that they, they have these things and these, there's thousands of them down there but they don't kind of put two and two together that they're significant in any way yeah, yeah. yeah that's a, that's a good point it's an interesting thought yeah. So Spock seemed very fascinated by it. Up, oh, and we just lost another guy. Mm -hmm. Now, on um, the mud episode we watched, mm -hmm. what were they doing down on that planet? They weren't mining, but they were doing something, right? Were they harvesting uh, energy? I'm not sure. I thought they were mining, but okay, yeah. It just it it's it it I it I got a a hint of those guys hanging out on that planet uh, looking for women on uh, the mud episode. Yeah, the, these guys seem a little bit more. Uh, look at that! He has to press a button to open the door. Mm. 
Isn't that isn't that very contrary to Star Trek? Yeah. You know, he but, has to actually reach under the desk. It's almost like a panic button. Yeah, you can but but like you said this, you know, this uh this establishment has a couple of uh decades uh behind it. Oh yeah. So uh, their technology could be decades behind as well. That's that's possibly true. I love how Spock stops Kirk from <laughs> touching the uh potentially corrosive acid here. Yeah, and it, that reminded me of uh of Alien. It yeah, you know, it reminded me of that too. And you know this um, this section of set here is actually the same apparatus that Kirk phasered during the Enemy Within. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. So pretty neat. Yeah, it's nice. A uh, nice repurposing. Yeah, they do that quite a bit. So they've been robbed. They have. So they've <laughs> lost a, a a part that helps to provide a heat and life support and airflow for the uh, for the entire colony. So now they're really in a tough spot. So it uh, doesn't look good. So they mentioned earlier in this episode, we, we, we missed it. They mentioned uh, this significant uh, ore or element that they're mining down there called Pergeum. Yeah. Which Kirk is seems to be very, very insistent upon uh, getting back into production. But strangely, Pergeum itself doesn't wind up getting mentioned again on the original series or in the animated series. In fact, it doesn't get mentioned again in Star Trek until... Uh, Deep Space Nine. Wow, so in, a Deep Space Nine writer must have been bored one night. Yep. Uh, an episode <laughs> called Prodigal Daughter uh, had several uh, Pergia mines in it, one owned by the Ferengi. And further on, it's finally mentioned again in an episode of Voyager uh, called Fair Trade, where uh, it was needed uh, to regenerate the filters of the of Voyager's environmental systems, and they wound up having to do some... Uh, trading to try to get some. So Pergeum, as important as Kirk's as it is, doesn't get a lot of play. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of cool though that they did. Uh, they did find uses for it uh, in in future series. Yeah, a lot of things. It's amazing how many little the beginnings of how many things you see in the original series that show up later on in other series. Yeah, I gotta say, if I was running one of those uh, one of those spinoff series, I would have had a constant rotation mm -hmm. i would add a room at the studio you know uh, at paramount um a, a viewing room that just had the original series on a loop and you brought mm -hmm. the writers in three at a time yep. said you're going to stay here you're going to watch it four out you know four episodes and then rotate out 24 hours a day <laughs> <laughs> well that would have helped continuity as a way to sort of get these you know people you know get their eyes on the original series and help generate ideas. Yeah, I I agree. I completely because yeah, I mean agree. you have this incredible incredible world um, to build, uh, but at the same time you have so much material that you can use that's already been established. Definitely. So Spock has now theorized that uh, the creature is not a carbon-based life form, as we're all used to to seeing and experiencing. In fact, he thinks it may be silicone-based or silicon-based life to which McCoy laughed off but Kirk seems to be buying into that theory and pretty yeah. passionately and it's pretty cool because Kirk uh he is kind of showing that he he has the ability to think on his feet so he's building on Spock's theory uh speculating on what the creature could be made of have an armor plating because it has to live comfortably in an in all rock environment uh, things like that so it's pretty neat that that uh You've got this trinity of guys here, yeah. and this is a great character, a team-building moment for them as they all kind of put their brains together yeah. and, and try then, to figure out what's going on. 
Yeah, and I think we're going to have a, a great McCoy moment here. Yes. Um, where he sort of, he, he's going to, what, take a, a step forward um, as he thinks Spock is going to say some stuff that, that would embarrass him, right? Yeah, and Spock yeah. refuses to, to keep speculating <laughs> yeah. because he doesn't want to give McCoy uh, any more uh, ammo, as it were. So, yeah, there, he's Kirk's questioning uh, Spock's fascination with the round silicon sphere and uh, yeah, there are thousands of them down the lower level. So Spock, of course, is seeing the significance of this perfectly spherical rock where nobody else does. They just kind of dismiss it as a, ah, yeah, it's just something they found laying around. Mm-hmm. So Kirk is asking Spock to speculate. McCoy steps up. Yeah, here. I waiting for something. <laughs> Look at him. like He's got his head tilted. He's waiting patiently. Yeah, he sort of turns his ear towards yeah. him. It's great. <laughs> it was such a, a fun moment for me because I was like, wow, McCoy's being, a, you know, McCoy's ramping it up here a little bit. He's, he's like, you know, turn it, twisting the knife almost. Yeah, really. You notice that uh, it's funny that Kirk doesn't seem to be overly concerned about all of the, the uh, colonists who've already died. Yeah. Isn't that you know, funny? I, because... I was going to say, though, the one thing that I found in this episode is. I don't know if Kirk was reading a lot of, you know, like uh, poetry or uh, eating a lot of, uh, you know, granola, <laughs> but he seemed uh, pretty chill in this episode. Yeah, I was going to say that. And, and, you know, in the past, we've seen him get pretty uh, amped up when there's a threat. Yeah. And in this, he just really stays totally cool and even. Yeah. All throughout. Pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I wouldn't say it's out of character by any means, but it just seemed like he was definitely going through a phase here. Like I, like I, I picture him, you know, discovering, uh, you know, a new poet or, uh, <laughs> you know, factoring something new into his diet that sort of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, soothed him a little bit. Yeah. So question for you. Is this the most red shirts we've seen in a single scene yet? I think so. That's and, six and guys. And the fact that I, you know, uh, what, uh, they all survive too. Mm, I think one bites it. Okay, yeah. One bites it, but you see six red shirt security guys in one shot. I, I, I think that that's the most we've seen so far. Yeah. But yeah, something it... tells me we may see more than that. <laughs> so we also skipped over the. Uh, we missed the mention of Phaser Two mm-hmm. versus yeah. Phaser One. So this so is the I only episode that described... does that. I'm sorry. So this is the only episode that makes yeah. the distinction between Phaser 1 and Phaser 2. Yeah. So that's basically Phaser 1 is the little part that sits on top. Yep. And 2 is the actual – The whole handheld pistol, handle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a pretty neat sort of uh, clarification for me. Yeah, because you, you, you wonder. and it's But it's funny that it's the only time they ever talk about it. Yeah, yeah. It, so it definitely – I was embarrassed to, to – uh, to be like, I don't know what they're talking about here. <laughs> yeah. You notice, and there's another funny thing here, Kirk and Spock are off on their own without any additional security, you know, with them in, in a in a really dangerous scenario. Yeah. You know, no one has survived an attack by this creature yet. You know, they figure, you know, we're, 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 we're cool enough to handle this. Mm-hmm. You know, and Spock has modified the settings on his tricorder that he can sort of track a silicon-based life form. Yeah. So, and they're going to actually track this thing down. Uh, and I think this is the red shirt that bites it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yep. And here we go. And 
little noises coming up behind him. Are those a set of weights on the floor? <laughs> yeah, they have, well, I, I think that's what they are in real life, but I'm not sure what they were for yeah. for Star Trek. Yeah, did you notice we got a little glimpse of the creature there? Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. So we still don't know exactly what it looks like. Up oh, and there it is, the melted guy. And it's, strangely, his phaser is unharmed. Never even had a chance to fire. Oh, so they're speculating that the creature must still be around because it was only seconds. They actually ran over and uh, and found him just after the creature got a hold of him. Look at that look on Kirk's face. It's one of his own. Now he's a little more personally invested in the situation. Yeah. You notice how nonchalantly they're walking around, though. <laughs> You know, despite having a guy just got completely dissolved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, somehow Spock can tell that that tunnel was only made moments ago. <laughs> but we're learning a little bit more about the creature itself. Because, yeah. you know, that Kirk says that tunnel goes far beyond where their eyes can see up. And there it is. The introduction of the Horda itself. And it's our... Uh, one of very few non-humanoid aliens that we're going to see on this show. So pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Uh, you know, a couple little side notes about the Horda now that we've seen it. Uh, the costume for the Horda was actually designed before the script for this episode was written. Yeah, wasn't it used in, a, in another show? Uh, the basis of it, the basis for the Horda, they're both designed by the same guy. Uh, it was used in the final episode of the Outer Limits series yeah. called The Probe. And uh, this version of the Horda was designed for Star Trek. But uh, after displaying the costume uh, to to the writers and to Roddenberry, they said, what is it? And he said, well, it is whatever you want it to be. So they said, well, we'll write a script about it. So yeah. they actually wrote a script to fit that creature. Yeah. That and had that been guy made. was actually in the suit as well, right? That's Yanis uh, Prohaska. Yes, sir. Yeah, Hungarian actor. A yes, stunt sir. performer, yeah. Yeah, it must be pretty grueling to crawl around with that costume on. Yeah. But but pretty cool. I like how the, the, the back of it, even the piece that's detached that's been blown off the creature, still kind of pulses like that. Yeah. You know, it kind of looks like hamburger meat or something, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Looks like a, like some kind of like, you know, cheesy sauce and meat meatball or something stuck in there. It's like like when, when mom would make a tray of meatballs with sauce and then you'd stick in the fridge overnight. And you pull it out the next day and that's what it would look like. You know what's funny? Um, you mentioned that this is one of the the only non-humanoids. I guess if we if we count the Tribbles, mm -hmm. um, very few. Um, but that might be the thing that made me sort of off balance with this creature. Really? Um, yeah, because we're so used to seeing, or at least I'm so used to seeing humanoid-like creatures in Star Trek that um, I don't know. There was something that that kind of threw me off with this creature, and it might be. You know, the you know, the rubbery look of it or, you know, um, being so low to the ground like that. And it, it, it really looks like it belongs in the 60s. Hmm, potentially. But, you yeah. know, I'll 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 put myself out there uh, for for the ire of uh, Star Trek fans who may be listening to this and say one of my very few nitpicks about Star Trek in general is that I felt that there were too many humanoid aliens you know, they're always meeting aliens that have two arms and two legs and oh, a head. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of refreshing when you saw an alien that didn't look like a guy in a suit. Yeah, yeah. 
you know so for me you know something like the horda or the tribbles was great i, I thought finally you know we're going to see something different here that doesn't that isn't necessarily limited to you know human type motion and and they can kind of use their imaginations to write something mm-hmm. a little bit different mm-hmm. i i want to um have have you start keeping your eye out for something and and maybe you notice this already but is it me or are there a handful of moments where they do like shots from like behind kirk where it doesn't look like shatner yeah because that's his stand-in oh okay is it really i I didn't have a chance to dig through and do the research on that yeah yeah there's quite a few scenes in this that actually have his stand-in because uh, he was actually offset for a bit Oh wow! So it, it was one of those things where, and, and instead of saying, "Oh, we're we're going to work around the the we're, the production schedule," we're just going to move forward with the stand-in. Yeah. Oh, oh! Here's another scene, and our record has now been broken. Yes. Look at that. They've called in more. Eight red shirts <laughs> in a single scene. Uh, that more fuel is for the fire. amazing. <laughs> what a glorious sight that is! All doomed men. Not necessarily, uh, but, uh, you know, there was a line in here uh, that we, we were talking about something else and, and it passed, but uh, interesting, something that sets a precedent for future Star Trek episodes and will become a uh, almost part of the prime directive, I guess, is, uh, you know, Spock surmises that the Horda is uh, the last of its of its kind and to kill it would be a crime against science. Yes. So, you know, Kirk, and, and, and right here, he actually, uh, in, Spock instructed the security guys to capture the beast, and Kirk uh, quickly turned around and, and supplanted that order saying, uh, no. Yeah. You know, needs, needs to be killed. But this, this kind of establishes a lot about Spock and his interest in science. Mm-hmm. You know, and here's another great exchange, by the way, that... Um, you know, Kirk, I think he felt that Spock was, was going to jeopardize this mission to put people in danger. So he's trying to send him away to go work with Scotty on keeping the uh, the reactor going. And Spock is actually going to convince him to let him stay by quoting him odds. Yes. He quotes him the odds to say, you know, the, the odds of us both dying to this creature are 2,228.7 to 1. Yeah. And Kirk... You know, it's the little humor music starts playing. Do, 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 do. And Spock said, well, yeah, Kirk said, well, you know what? I guess if those are the, really the odds, then uh, I guess you can stay. But uh, yeah. but stay out of trouble. Yeah. How do you even calculate those odds, though? I, I don't do you know. you base it on the amount of people that have been killed so far, you know, and, and somehow factor in the time frame that those deaths occurred? Your guess is as good as mine. But, I, you know, with, with a mind as powerful as Spock's, I am not yeah. going to doubt the fact that he could do it. I bet you there is a, a Trek fan out there who has done the calculations. You know, somebody, uh, you know, uh, a math professor who's also a Trek fan. Yep. Yep. Hit us up if you do. <laughs> Hit us up if you do. If you can explain how Spock could come up with that number, you let us know. It's a very strange number. Yeah. So uh, this, um, what, um, what's his name here? Um, Shem. <laughs> I don't even know yeah. his name. Well, the, Schmechner, Schmitter, the, Schmitter. The uh, the 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 Scotty's makeshift uh, apparatus has blown up. Yeah. And now they've got forty-eight hours. Oh no, ten hours. Sorry, yeah. Vanderberg. Uh, they've got ten hours 
uh, in which to get that uh, that uh, that piece back from the Horda, which is interesting because all we've seen of the Horda so far is that it's a blob-like creature that can dissolve people with some sort of acid. So how did it actually reach in there and grab that piece, disconnect it, and haul <laughs> it away somewhere? Is there like a little arm underneath or something? I always wondered that. Yeah. Ugh, I, I don't want to speculate too much because it might get gross. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> if anybody has any speculations, let us know. We'd love to hear. Uh, oh. So as, as I was all confused about Schmitter versus Vandenberg, I was just going to say that Vandenberg is played by Ken Lynch, who um, seemed to play a cop a lot. Well, that makes sense. He kind of looks like a cop. Yeah. Did you did you notice that Spock somehow was able to know that they were being watched? Yeah. Is that like another he, Vulcan power? Yeah, I don't know that or if he's just, you know, he's really tuned in. Oh, well, that's possible, too. That's possible, too. Now, here's a very key moment. You know, Kirk is is uh, insisting that they split up almost whimsically. He's smiling. Yeah. You know, and I guess he feels very cocky and confident because he knows that Phaser Two can hurt the thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, he has to he has to hope that you know he doesn't get snuck up on by the, because it obviously can jump out pretty quickly. Yeah. And this tracking shot here felt very cinematic. It for did. Me. We've talked about cinematic moments in tr- Star Trek and. And that was a very, uh, for me, that was a very cinematic move. Yeah, followed by some very great lighting and camera work in these tunnels. Mm-hmm. The use of light and shadow here, uh, with them crouching down and walking around a little, you really feel like they're confined. Even though you know those are kind of makeshift little fabric you know, tunnels that they made. But it looks like they're actually in some sort of a... Look at Spock walking uh, in the light and in in behind him and his face gets shadowed. Yeah. Very foreboding. Uh, and Kirk has stumbled into an area that has a lot of those silicon nodules, or the painted rubber balls. So do you think, like, uh, somebody, you know, low in the production department um, had to, like, run out to all the local supermarkets to, uh, <laughs> to find these balls? I bet you they or- they ordered them from some overseas <laughs> supplier. They but, probably uh, made that company's, you know, nut for the year. Yeah, they probably did. Now, uh-oh, we saw the Horda has just caused a cave-in. That was kind of cool. Yeah. You know, it took out some sort of a little pillar there. And see, this moment right here, I think, is really key to Spock's character. You see how concerned he's getting? Yeah. He drops the formality and starts calling him Jim. Yeah. That, for for a character who is emotionless as Spock, to break like that, I yeah. think is really significant. In fact, Nimoy himself has said it in some interviews that he loved yeah. the fact that uh, he was able to um, to connect with Kirk like that in this episode. Yeah, and there'll be another episode this season where he sort of uh, uh, has a, a similar reaction uh, in, in a muck time, I believe. Yes, yeah. yes, that's coming up very soon. Beginning mm-hmm. of uh, S2. Oh, here's a remastered shot. Of the Horda coming out of the wall, which I think is pretty cool. They they made it a little like a fiery, melty, uh, uh-oh. And the, the zoom in and uh, fade to the, oh, nope. Kirk is in some serious trouble. Fade to commercial. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't right. actually think that the remaster really improved too much on the uh, on what they had done originally. Uh, it, it was a slight alteration, but but cool yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, I think they only had so much they could work with because they were actually 
there was something that they couldn't really sort of completely replace. Yeah. And you know, I it, wonder if there were times where they said, hey, can we do a completely digital Horda? I wonder. But did you notice that Kirk doesn't immediately shoot this thing? Mm -hmm. So I think that is really cool. I'm that telling you, man, he must have been. This was him going through a phase. I don't know. Maybe it's him. <laughs> maybe it's him growing. Maybe it's the character of Kirk growing and learning from his past mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the mark of a of a of a great Starfleet captain. Is that and he there's, can I learn think, a double shot. Mistake. There was that, from the back there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. So uh, you know, he's, Spock is going to just learn that uh, that the Horda is actually right in front of Kirk, and yeah. this is a really cool moment for Spock as well because you can you can hear and and taste the concern. Spock yeah. is telling Kirk to kill it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, what a reversal. Yes. Right. So you have Kirk who wanted to kill it. Now he's not killing it, and Spock, who didn't want to kill it, who's telling Kirk to kill it. So pretty amazing, and you, you can't take the risk. Your life is in danger. Yeah. But Kirk is not willing to take that shot because the creature is not advancing on him. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else who's who spent mere seconds with the creature has been uh, turned to you know uh, cinders. But, yeah. Uh... But Kirk, Kirk feels that uh, there's something more there. Mm -hmm. You know, and and. Uh, we're going to find out that he's actually right. But this is interesting to me that he didn't fire immediately on sight. I mean, you would have thought that the second it came out of that wall, that phaser oh, yeah. would have been firing. Yeah. You know, but this is really interesting. And he tries to talk to it. Yeah, he's sort of like, hey, uh, we're at a standoff here. What are we going to how are we going to do this? Yeah. And <laughs> strangely, the, it, the Horda seems to understand what he's talking about and kind of swirls around to show yeah. him the injury. Yeah, he shows him the fried egg on his back. Yeah, poor thing. <laughs> so yeah, he's gonna—they're just gonna kind of hang out there, and you know, Kirk's waiting for uh, the hoarder to do something, and he's telling Spock not to shoot. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you know, the the scientific side of Spock is gonna kick in, and he's gonna kind of lower the phaser and and kind of come over to where Kirk is. So pretty neat. So the Horda, a couple more notes on uh, the Horda. Uh, you know, a lot of Star Trek, iconic Star Trek monsters and aliens wind up making appearances again later on. But the Horda is another one of those that doesn't make uh, appearances again in any of the other series and only shows up in books. So um, there are a couple of instances where it showed up in a comic and in a the first one is in a DS9 novel actually called The Devil in the Sky and it's sort of a quasi sequel to the episode that we're watching right now. Uh, the Horda themselves are enlisted to help uh, rebuild the mining industry on Bajor. Oh and, cool, so they uh, sort of fly him in. Yeah, and <laughs> the Cardassians somehow kidnap uh, the Mother Horda which leaves Cisco dealing with a bunch of uh, newly hatched Horda with no uh, no mother to teach them what to do. So they're kind of eating through uh, DS9, the, the station. <laughs> oh, so, wow. Um, yeah, another. And there's also a Star Trek comic. Now, this is right up my alley, and I'm going to seek this out because I've never read this. It depicts an attempted Borg invasion of Janus 6. <laughs> so you get Borg versus Horda. Right up my alley, man. Oh, that is great. So I am going to be looking that up, seeing if I can get a copy of that. So I read a short synopsis, and uh, I am intrigued. So Kirk 
is uh, asking, you know, uh, Spock to try the mind meld on the Horda. And we're going to see that the mind meld is not only restricted to humanoids, but he can actually mind meld with, I guess, anything that's sentient. Yeah, and and have I know I, I remember you mentioning this in an earlier episode, but I, I don't remember we saw it where he does the mind meld without touching it. Yeah, the it, I guess there's different strengths of mind melds because he can only get so much without actually touching something because he does a second mind meld in a little while where he actually lay his hands on the Horda. Yeah. To get deeper into some sort of communication, I guess, two way, maybe. But he's he's feeling the Horda's extreme pain right now. I guess from you know, they did more damage to it than uh, than they thought. And we're getting a little bit of uh, an interesting effect here that Spock is getting emotional and physical transference from the mind melt. So he's yeah, actually he's feeling almost, the pain. Yeah, it almost seemed to me like he was he was um, acting as a medium here. Yeah, kind of conveying a message and and the, the feeling. And here is a uh, an iconic moment where the Horda actually communicates in savvy English. No Kill I, which has yeah. become the name of a punk band, by the way. Okay, I was going to say, a band had to have used that. Yeah, a punk band. Um, and I'd imagine no there's a, probably a bunch of tattoos out there as well. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Actually, I have one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it says it right on my heart. So when you go to give me the defibrillator, it says No Kill I. But... Yeah. And it's cool because cause Kirk's not sure if that means that it doesn't want them to kill it or if it's saying, hey, I'm... I'm you know, now that I know what you guys are about, I'm not going to kill you. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, uh, and they say it's Spock is not acting like a wounded creature. And we get the name, the Horda. Mm-hmm. So it calls itself a Horda. So they need a, uh, Kirk is now asking Spock to reestablish communication to try to get the, um, the device back so that yeah. they can get the, the colony back up and running. Yeah, but. one thing I really liked here was Kirk's sort of um, pleasure at meeting this race that um, no one has really ever interacted with. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, he, I think he realizes, you know, that that it's his that it's his, now his duty to yeah. save this thing somehow. Yeah, you know, while while also saving the colonists, but he realizes the the not only the scientific but the human reason to save the creature i mean the the, the compassion the, to save another race that's peaceful yeah you know obviously has it it doesn't have uh the the desire to to harm kirk or spock they've been able to communicate with it yeah and uh, now it's just finding a way to save it and uh say also save it from the colonists who are pretty hell-bent on killing it mm-hmm. so the poor horda Obviously seething and pain out, Spock is going to go back and, and actually touch it. I think this is actually kind of neat. It's pretty well acted, actually, by the guy inside that costume. Uh, you know, because it's, it's kind of quivering. Now, when Spock goes to put its hands on it, you can see it's going to start to shiver a little bit here. See, I think that's a pretty cool acting job by the guy yeah. underneath it. Yeah, yeah he's really selling it. That performer died in a, in a plane crash while oh. working on a TV show in uh, 1974. Wow, that's a, wow, the year I was born. That's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Actually, I didn't even I didn't even think about that. It was a, it was uh, less than a month before I was born. Wow. That that's a shame. 
Yes, him and 34 other people working Ooh. on the show. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it looks like the colonists are, uh, they, they've armed themselves with uh, clubs and bats and boards with nails in them. Yeah, they're like the angry mob from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Then the only thing holding them back is uh, three of the red shirt security guys. And yeah. here we have another iconic and uh, much repeated Spock moment from the show where we're, we're the extreme pain, uh, the pain speaking, which actually was quite amusing for Shatner. Uh, got a good couple good laughs out of uh, <laughs> Spock's performance here. But, you know, you got to hand it to Nimoy. What a professional, man. He He really, really sells. He really sells it. There's not a minute of this that I don't doubt that he's feeling physical pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the performance is fantastic. You got well, yeah, because there's also a lot of subtle stuff in it. Yeah, all the um, little things he's saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but even if you watch his overall body motions, uh, you know, as well, you know, you, you you look at his hands and you look at you know, his eyes and his face. I mean, there's oh, absolutely. You know, there's there's a lot of different levels to that performance. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think one of one of his best uh, in the series. And up oh, enter McCoy. And uh, this is great because Kirk is just saying, listen, man, you're a doctor. Fix it. Yeah. You're a healer. Heal it. Yeah. This might be um, one of Kirk's most unreasonable moments on the show. You think? Because, I mean, logically, I mean, there's no reason to think that McCoy will be able to do anything. I don't know, man. I, 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 I mean, I'm... you know, I mean, not to discount McCoy's abilities as a doctor. Um, but he even says that he's a doctor, not a bricklayer. Um, but it, it, I guess maybe Kirk's not unreasonable as much as he has faith in McCoy's ability, much like he has faith, faith in Scotty's ability to fix the Enterprise when it's broken. Yeah, well, you know, just like uh, just like Scotty has to improvise with his knowledge and expertise, so does uh, Dr. McCoy. And, you know, just like you said, he's a doctor, not a bricklayer. And this is the first time... That the famous uh, McCoy line, I'm a doctor, not a blank, uh, has been used in the series. And it's become an iconic bit of dialogue that people refer to quite a bit. Yeah, you even have people that have never watched an episode of Star Trek, mm -hmm. you know, reciting uh, or, you know, putting their own spin on it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this another first for this episode, uh, you know, something that gets repeated quite often uh, by fans and uh, actors alike. Spock's still mind-melding. And the Horda, even though it's convinced that it's going to die, is actually telling Kirk where to find the, uh, the, the, the piece of machinery that he needs. Yeah, so, the Chamber of the Ages, which is such a cool name. It is, it is. I, it sounds like another band name. <laughs> yes, like uh, that's like sort of a prog rock one, though. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> definitely a prog rock one. Uh, so, but that that actually speaks volume. And the Vault of Tomorrow. It's yeah. another one. Another prog band. Well, that's the the, the the Chamber of Ages and the album or the or the sequence of songs is called The Vault of Tomorrow. Ah, very good. Sounds like some kind of a, a yes offshoot <laughs> yeah. solo album or something. Or some side alternate project. late sixties uh reality. There's uh you know uh that that band uh had a had quite a career yes they certainly did i'm a huge <laughs> fan so but i think it says a lot about the horda that you know it, it realizes that you know it's 
it could be dying here and it's it's willing to you know forego its taste for revenge mm-hmm. and allow the humans to live yeah i think that's that speaks a lot for the horda so not only did they say it's a peaceful creature but it's kind of proving its worth here yeah it's you know sort of that you know that spin on you know you know the you know the monster isn't as as terrifying as you think no and that's actually a really good message mm-hmm uh, in yeah, fact, well, it's basically don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, actually, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's something that I think that uh, we all could uh, learn a little bit from. Oh, and the angry mob. The angry yeah. mob is back again. Yeah, and the lead engineer here is Barry Russo, who we will see on a later episode playing a different character um, on the Ultimate Computer. So we'll have to keep an eye out for him. Ah, that's a great episode, yeah. too. Yeah, that's yeah a great completely episode. different characters. So uh, not the first actor to uh, play multiple characters on Star Trek, and I'm sure not the last. Nah, definitely won't be the last. Yeah. Definitely won't be the last. Uh, Kirk has come across a pile of uh, silicon nodules, and some of them are broken and shattered. So potentially uh, not just plain old rocks, eh? Yeah, they look like eggs that have been hatched. Hmm. Yep, yep. And it looks like uh, potentially the the human miners who stumbled onto this chamber have uh, have broken open some of these uh, eggs or destroyed them. Oh yeah, okay. You know what? For some reason, I thought that those were 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 uh, the result of hatching. No, I thought they uh, that that's why the horde is pissed in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but actually, but she directed Kirk to that place. Yes, because that's where oh, she saying, stored the. This is piece where you're going to find out why I'm pissed, and then I'm going to send you to where I hid the <laughs> piece you need. Yeah, you have to go through there. Maybe all right, okay, her. all right, cool. I yeah, can. Yeah. I, I. I. didn't. I didn't follow that. So, um, there's actually a quote here that uh, I'll read. A quote by Arthur C. Clarke uh, about this particular episode. Oh, cool. Uh, he said, this is the only episode, uh, the only episode he could recall of Star Trek was The Devil in the Dark. And he said that it impressed him because it presented the idea, unusual in science fiction uh, then and now, that something weird, even dangerous, need not be malevolent. This is a lesson that many of today's politicians have yet to learn. Ah. Uh, he said that in 1995. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke was uh, quite, quite, quite a mind. Yes, he was. Very prolific. Very prolific. So, Spock now has said that those are definitely her eggs, and the miners must have destroyed yeah. them. Uh-oh. I must have been daydreaming at that point. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, and boom. Ooh. Oh, man. The, the, the poor, the red shirts, they're not dead, but man, did they take a beating. Yeah, I mean, that the, the head one, he took a shot right to the back Oof. of the head from that, like, aluminum bat wow now this is great this is a great moment the first man that fires is dead yep wow and they believe it too yeah and oh and you know and kirk hits him with the big stunner yeah, you know, dummies that, you're killing her eggs now you've killed thousands of her children and boy and you know it's and it's it's kind of it's good on them because they seem to to immediately lower their weapons and say, wait a minute, you know what? We really screwed up. Yeah. You know, they, they don't say, ah, to hell with it. They killed our, he killed our people. Let's kill it anyway. 
Yeah. And then we get this sort of history where every 50,000 years, mm -hmm. the race dies off, save one who basically repopulates the, uh, the species. Yep, exactly. And they're peaceful and mild and she and they were going to share the the uh, planet with the miners had no problem with people uh, until they started killing her baby as yeah, yeah. and and he's relating it to any mother any mother doesn't matter if it's an alien a human or what when their children are threatened they're going to fight back yeah and then the miner makes a good point how how could we have known that's true yeah but i i will refer to something that i uh, i said earlier that uh, as a as a miner they see a lot of rocks, and they should have known that there's something different about these perfectly spherical piles of rocks that they came across. Yeah. They had to understand that you know, the odds of – have you ever in your life found a perfectly spherical rock? Don't think um, so. I want to say yes. <laughs> the odds are very, very slim. And if you did find one, the odds of you finding a thousand of them. Yeah. You know, it would have to be probably be on the beach somewhere, you know, that had been, you know, uh, you know, shaped like that after, you know, years and years and years of exposure to the ocean. Potentially, potentially or or, or a pearl. Yeah. Yeah. From a, from a from a from an oyster clam or whatever. Do you think there's any um, relevance to the colors of the miners jumpsuits? No, no. Uh, I was reading a little bit earlier, and uh, oh, McCoy has saved yeah the Horda, but the um, the jumpsuits themselves. Uh, I could cure a rainy day. That was that's a great one. That's a country doctor for you. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the the gold, the yellow uh, jumpsuit is a single jumpsuit. He's uh, the um, Vanderberg's the only one that wears that. The purple one is a singular one, and then all the other ones seem to be kind of you know mass produced. So but I don't think they have any specific significance. Just a way to, to tell those two characters apart. Yeah, from the well, rest I, of I still got him confused. <laughs> so pretty awesome, though, that McCoy was able to save the Horda's life, wasn't it? Yeah. And you know what? It, it took Kirk's sort of encouragement or, you know, uh, you know, desperate encouragement, but encouragement yeah. nonetheless. And I guess that's what a good leader does is, um, you know, they they get the best out of their uh, people. Um, yep. Even when they realize they can't deliver um, the results that they're ultimately going to deliver. Yeah. As a good captain. he. Uh... Wow. And I never noticed that uh, Uhura is not there. I guess they said, hey, yeah. there's no reason to come to set today to, sh to film one shot. Yeah. So I'm going to say this to me, the end of this episode, this last scenes, these last scenes on the bridge, the exchange between Kirk and Spock and McCoy is one of my favorite wrap ups to a Trek episode. The, the the humor that goes on between the three of them is is almost uh, almost series defining character defining sure to me great great stuff here yeah so basically the horda and its and its brood have uh have uncovered all sorts of new elements and yep. uh in addition to the pejorium or pergium pergium yep and um, now <laughs> so she's saying Spock is saying that the horda was a little uh, put off by human appearance, but she seems to she she thought that the Spock's ears were the most uh, attractive human trait, but he didn't have the heart to tell her that he wasn't human. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then Kirk's Spock... like, "No, there's no way that Horta really liked those ears." Yeah, and now Spock is saying, "Yeah, he's got a she's got impeccable taste." <laughs> he's like, "My captain, my modesty," but 
Kirk says, I suspect you're becoming more and more human all the time. And uh, Spock is obviously insulted. Give no reason to stand here and be insulted. Yeah. Classic, classic moment. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess as we wrap up, uh, you, as you said, you sort of tipped your hand already. But I guess we'll talk about the the essential nature of this episode. Yeah. I Well, I did tip my hand, but uh, there are there do have to be reasons for me to call an episode essential aside from just me liking it. Mm-hmm. So but in this case, uh, I do say this is an essential episode for several reasons. One is it fits the memorable villain rule so uh, it does have a memorable alien slash villain who doesn't turn out to be a villain in the end but the horda is an ongoing and lasting uh, star trek alien so a lot of people know who the horda is it's been mentioned again uh, so that that qualifies for me uh, some fantastic character moments between uh, kirk and spock you can see kirk growing as a as a captain and as a person by the way he reacts to the Horda and, you know, not shooting it and killing it immediately and, and actually, uh, you know, allowing it to live and and, hel- and helping it to recover from its injuries. I think that's fantastic. Uh, we find out that a mind meld can happen between any a Vulcan and a sentient being. doesn't have to be human or another Vulcan. And uh, the introduction of the Phaser 2 thing, the explanation of Phaser 2 is nice. So... Um, few good reasons that i consider this essential yeah you know i'll sort of just piggyback on that and say really for me the defining essential moment of this episode was sort of the you know the expansion of the rules uh or the possibilities of the mind meld ah very good very so good. Uh, i i will sign off on this and, and call it an essential episode and it's a fun watch as well. Yeah, very, very cool watch. So again, you know, I, I said it once already, but I'll say it again. This is one of my favorite Trek episodes of all time and has been my favorite uh, off and on. I mean, I do change back and forth between what my favorite is between, you know, years here and there. But this has been on the top of my list uh, ever since I was a young lad. Excellent, so. excellent. And uh, you definitely... Uh... Did a lot of homework for this episode and, uh, you know, presented a lot of cool and interesting uh, facts that uh, that I had known about this episode. Oh, very good. I'm glad you so, uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, very cool discussion. And that brings us to the end of another episode. And, uh, you know, thank you, as always, for spending some time with us as we watch uh, and talk about Star Trek. And you can find us um, over on, or on the web at the tricordertransmissions.com. Also on Twitter at TTT underscore pod. And we have a Facebook page, which is Facebook.com uh, slash Tricorder Transmissions. Uh, the Tricorder Transmissions. Tri- yeah. And uh, we love interacting with with uh, listeners and fans of Star Trek uh, um, on Twitter and uh, on Facebook. So uh, if you're inclined to do so, please join us. Uh, we love the conversations. Yep. Hope to see you guys online and hope to see you again next week. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Captain, the Horda is a remarkably intelligent and sensitive creature with impeccable taste. Because she approved of you. Really, Captain, my modesty. Does not bear close examination, Mr. Spark. I suspect you're becoming more and more human all the time. Captain, I see no reason to stand here and be insulted.